Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. All the time. <laughs> it's the friends we made along the way, isn't it? Look, we've, we've said always that the show is about the three important things in life. Mm-hmm. Which is communism, friendship. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if there's time, maybe a scary movie. There's a, what else What else do, do you need? I mean, like, soft four is really loud Icelandic music and dancing, but we'll get to that. Yeah, I I mean I I you know I suppose I should ask how 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 are you doing how did you how did you sleep last night? <laughs> well, you know I've been sleeping so well here in this uh, rustic hotel that we've been staying in, but uh, last night I actually slept better than I ever have in my entire life, and it's all thanks to those Icelandic dancers. Their their beautiful racket lulled me to sleep like a mother's lullaby. I, I have never slept so well. How about you? I mean, it was a little bit awkward that they decided to give you specifically an entire leg of lamb. But I know that they were just being hospitable. And I'm, I'm very glad you didn't take that personally. No, I just I, I, I simply re-gifted it. I know plenty of people who would who would happily uh, burst out into Icelandic song and dance over the gift of a leg of lamb. Um, but hello, everybody. Hello. We continue. Uh, hello to the to to the nebulous audience that is Diane. In this context, we continue <laughs> our adventures through the metatextual journey of trying to understand Twin Peaks. Uh, I am joined by the Log Lady of Horror Vanguard, Ash. Aww. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing great today. How how are you doing, uh, special podcast investigator John? I I'm I'm a little tired. I could do with I could do with a good cup of coffee, but I am we're holding it together. <laughs> oh, so so I guess I guess we should start with like the meta formalism zone. Uh, as you'll recall from our episode on rest and pain. Uh, we were convinced we recorded it. We remembered the conversation and the episode just simply did not exist. There was no evidence to be found of it. Um, it was subsumed into some some black lodge cycle of existence. And here we find ourselves again at episode five, Cooper's Dream. And I swear we did this one. The, con- the, uh, the conversation we're about to have, the notes that we've taken... Everything feels so familiar. I am in a Lynchian moment of deja vu. Yeah, I mean, are we are we uh, are we forgetting that we've done this, or are we remembering something that we're about to do? Ooh, ooh, I like this. I like this. I love the deep dyschronia. We are we are remembering events that have yet to come. Uh, we are. We are temporally dislocated. We are out of time. Um, we are bound into the endless act of repetition, of restaging the same questions. Uh, like, like, like Hamlet's uh, father's ghost, we have <laughs> appeared once. We have appeared again. We've appeared once again to, to haunt you all by talking about 
drunken Icelandic singing. <laughs> and if you would like to appear once again as a ghost uh, and enjoy some of the finest, finest traditional folk music coming out of Iceland, you can go to Horror Vanguard. Dot com, which is our website that we have now. It's got links to everything. Oh, I have saved a fumbled plug. You can also go to <laughs> patreon.com forward slash horror vanguard. Stay winning. <laughs> yes, uh, I am I, very impressed. Horrorvanguard.com is not a bit anymore. Um, also, do you remember how we've done this show for like three years and we mm. had the wrong the wrong SoundCloud link on our Twitter profile ever for, for that entire time? Yeah, that was great. I'm I'm so happy with that, you know. But hey, you 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 don't you don't you don't come here for like a masterclass in podcast marketing. You come here for the 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 most the the most advanced arcane sorcery when it comes to discussing horror cinema. So you know we're 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 staying on top of the ball. We're on top of and fumbling pretty much everything else. <laughs> well, let us let us let's talk about Cooper's dream. Let us enter into the. Um, media cultural shared psychogenetic hallucination that is twin Ooh. peaks let us let us talk about let us talk about dreaming and cooper's dream specifically so this this i find really intriguing right obviously this is a this is a david lynch piece of artwork so the concept of dreaming is is going to be very central to how we approach it but i think Cooper has literal dreams in Twin Peaks that, that, that we get to explore. He's also got these dream state visitations of the Black Lodge. But, but I think more broadly, the episode title is really evocative for me because what is Cooper's dream? Like Cooper the man, Cooper the person, what does he dream for on this earth? And, and every moment he gets to have his little musings, he just wants to settle down in the town of Twin Peaks he, he, he loves the community. He loves the quiet nature of the trees. He wants to rest. I think, I think a good way of contrasting the show is to think about something like Christopher Nolan. <laughs> and, and specifically yes, to, th- to think about Inception. Mm-hmm. So Christopher Nolan is like, a, is like a very formally interesting filmmaker, right? Interested in the mechanics of how do you tell narrative through sequential images. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about Tenant, right? Um, think about the 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 um, the time problems in Interstellar, but like the big one is is Inception because it's about when you when Christopher Nolan dreams, what does Christopher Nolan see? And Christopher Nolan sees a ski resort, right? He's he sees mm-hmm. he sees he sees the kind of beautiful form of the object, right? Idealized, perfected. Everything is kind of like high sheen there's a gloss to his psychogeography to his internal uh dream landscape when cooper dreams when lynch dreams like everything is everything is less realistic but much more real right because what does cooper dream of cooper dreams of of peace right he dreams of he doesn't dream of of anything Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond the realms of the possible, but he dreams of the actualization of the possible, right? Yes, yep. And the second point to bring up here is like, what is the relationship of the dream to truth? Mm-hmm. And so what you can do is you can think of truth as essentially a matter of in- the interpretation of kind of like mute 
externalized facts. So this is the traditional truth of the detective, right? Facts exist outside there in the world, and you have to kind of interpret them to solve the hermeneutic puzzle of of who did it. But if you think of if you think of the dream as an altered state of consciousness, which it is, you th- you can also think about truth as a relationship to consciousness. See, I I love this reading of what's going on specifically in this episode because I think that this is this is an episode where kind of the production of the truths of Twin Peaks really start to emerge. You know, we we we've already met the Black Lodge. We've already situated ourselves in this kind of occulted atmosphere. And now we're beginning to kind of make meaning with the pieces that we have. We know I mean, our cast, this... we know our characters, we know our events, and we move for the first time. I mean, isn't this isn't this the whole point of the 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 log lady quote that I know you wanted to talk about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, log lady. Stay stay log and log lady. Log in your way through my heart. <laughs> so in the Log Lady's introduction of this episode, which I am now legally mandated to bring up, I tell what I can to form a perfect answer, but that answer cannot come before we are all ready to hear. So I tell what I can to form that perfect answer. And then she uh, goes on to state in kind of that, that same opening uh, that she's speaking of a fire, and the fire that she's speaking of is not kind. And I, I think this 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 really stands out in the nature of dreaming too, because there's something deeply involuntary about the dream state. You know, there's d- desire, and this is something. I mean, this is something we talk about literally every third episode on the show. The the Lacanian Zizekian approach to desire, right? It's this occulted thing. It is hidden behind layers of meaning, and the second you touch it, you fooled yourself because it's already three steps behind other things. You know, like like you never desire the thing you desire. It's always sublimated through something else. You just have to make peace with that. And I think the 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 dream state often finds a way of cutting through that. You know, the the uncomfortable kind of unkind nature of dreaming, the the awkward space between the dream and the nightmare. It's a way to kind of open up to to the raw reality of what is desired in the in the sense of the subject. And I think Twin Peaks does that really interestingly as a show, right? Everybody is at different relationships with their desire. And I think Cooper, in a way, is one of the characters that's most open about what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's that's what makes the his relationship with Audrey so good. Yes. Okay, yeah, let's let's talk about that. Uh and also, can we just talk about how great this show is in the fact that it doesn't think that sexual chemistry is necessarily instrumental? Like I, the yeah. the two the two of them the two of them have intense chemistry, but also, uh, like it's never instrumentalized towards a particular end, right? The end of them both ending up in bed together, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's not that's not what happens. But there is this, there is this kind of like acknowledgement of the kind of libidinal character of social yes. life mm-hmm. that so many other shows just, just don't take seriously or or treat in such a very narrow <clears throat> way. And you know, you can you could write it off and be like, well, it's just because 
they had two great actors uh, who just really... And yeah, of course, that's part of it. But also, there's a deliberate choice to frame these two characters this way. Yeah, so I, I think that this is such a phenomenal thing to highlight. And this is the episode to talk about it in, right? Because what's the end of this episode? It's Audrey Horn naked in Cooper's bed. You know, yep. like it, it is it is so libidinal. It is so enticing and, and taboo and forbidden. And it's it's kind of pivoting on all these very dynamic like like points. And, you know, what, what, what does Cooper do? He respectfully handles the situation and dismisses Audrey. You know, as as an adult should do in that situation, right? Just kind of steps out of that, you know, like recognizes the libidinal character of the moment and negates it. And I think that this is just so powerful, right? Like this, so this episode was directed by Leslie Gladder, who's gone on to direct a bunch of like successful TV shows and did I think two or three episodes of the Twin Peaks, the original series. Um, <clears throat> And she's even on the record as saying, like, you know, like, they never intended to have, like, any kind of romantic or sexual relationship between Cooper and Audrey. Yeah, it was yeah. it was uh, just two characters who, by where they were in their lives and what they were and what they wanted, were naturally drawn into each other. Yeah. And I think the way that this show is so open about just the libidinal nature of being without having to kind of, like... A, a modern Twin Peaks put on HBO would have had them sleeping together in a scene with full nudity, and then it would have had an arc where Cooper had to like, you know, he he was like, oh, he's he's getting drummed out of town for what he's done or something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's the difference between like eroticism and pornography, right? Yes, absolutely. And I mean the and I mean that in technical terms, right? I'm not trying to draw any kind of like moralistic, not trying to make any moralistic judgment here, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And the the great thing about this episode and the great thing about this show is that a worse show would have like properly infantilized Audrey in relationship, not just to Cooper, but to the world. Yes. You know, oh, she's like, she's, she's the, she's the one without any power or agency. And he's like the hot older guy that she like, but that's not how this works at all. And so much of this episode specifically is about her her the way that audrey moves through the world in a way that is kind of mm-hmm. just like utterly fascinating to me oh I, I completely agree like audrey is given a huge amount of agency in this show right like what she does with it is often dubious and foolish and juvenile of fitting to her character so perfectly well but like the fact that like the text of the show respects her enough to be like you're you're a full person begin to make decisions within the story that's unfolding you yes know? absolutely and and that like it, again not to like try and compare twin peaks to like a disney plus mcu show but like it would have been so easy to transform audrey into this unproblematic heroine yeah because she she has all the makings of a gothic heroine She's trapped in this labyrinthian castle of a hotel. She's got her tyrannical, adulterous father, like, uh, also incestuous father, right? She is the classic. She's pulled straight out of castle, the castle of Otranto. Like, but the Twin Peaks is like, okay, we're going to make this much more complicated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, um, what, I mean, what happens when, when, uh, Audrey, uncovers the kind of secret between um with Catherine and 
where they're talking about burning down the mill. Oh, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. Her, yeah, her dad. Yeah, and and what what does she do? She laughs at him, right? <laughs> like like yep. the, like in a class, the classic gothic heroine would be terrified or repulsed, mm-hmm. but like she understands what she sees, and like. And this, in a, in a way, this kind of reminds me a little bit of Mary Harron's direction of American Psycho. Oh, yes. Which, mm-hmm. which understands the inherent ridiculousness of a certain kind of, like, male heterosexuality. Yep. And, f- and just finds it kind of funny. <laughs> abs- abs- uh, absolutely. So I, I love Audrey so much. Audrey and Cooper are may uh, uh, I, lo- I love so many of the characters, but the two of them are just amazing. Um, and... This is a great episode for Audrey. Oh yeah, yeah. Like Audrey, Audrey is. is I, I I don't know how to say this other than she has the energy of a, a missing Scooby Doo character, right? G- getting into hijinks, exploring, solving mysteries. She's a teenager. Like <laughs> th- there's this kind of freedom and whimsy to her, even though it, it it goes to some extremely dark places with her character specifically. But is that is that not the nature of being? Is is it not just true that sometimes a desire to pursue, you know, like because a lot of Audrey's involvement in this investigation is extremely juvenile, you know, she's she's doing it because she wants to prove to this older man that she's got a crush on that she's that she's adult, right? That she's worthy of his attentions, and like it, over time, it becomes much more complicated than that. It becomes much more, and that's something that she wants, right? That's she's not doing it for him; she's doing it for her, which I also find to be really interesting about her character, right? It would have been easy to write her as like the school, the, uh, a schoolgirl with a crush, doing things for the man. Yeah. But no, yeah, she's yeah, doing but- she's doing this because she has a crush and she wants him. <laughs> Agency, right? And yes. Like- and you go, yeah, that is juvenile. That that is juvenile. That is, but also there's something kind of amazing about that, right? There's something, how, how like how many of us, how many of us have gone through our lives refusing to act? Like, isn't this isn't this the whole point of psychoanalysis? Is like it's not to get you to get get desire the correct thing, but it's just to mm-hmm. kind of like get you to admit to yourself what it is you actually want not what you have come to tell yourself you want. Yes, absolutely. And and to kind of build off of that, I've known so many people who picked up rock climbing uh, because someone that they were into was into rock climbing and they wanted to share more quality time together. The relationship didn't work out, but years later, they're still climbing. And that's that's just a trite example of someone who found a, a fitness hobby you know, through through the kind of whimsical and silly pursuit of desire, and and there there are also like in the case of Audrey Horn, there are like also very dark and deep and complex ways that this continues to emerge. Yeah, and and what I love about the show is that it takes all of that so seriously. Yep. Right. It never it never it never belittles Audrey and goes, oh well, they're just they're they're a silly eighteen year old. They'll mm-hmm. grow out of it. And they go, no, actually. There you go. Yeah, maybe that's true. But like, in all of its kind of psychodrama and 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 libidinal eroticism and danger, there's something about putting oneself into the act of of agent, like mm-hmm. being the one who acts in the world is an is an extraordinarily powerful thing. Yes, yes, and I think that this is something that like 
like like you know you mentioned the way that audrey's character kind of moves through the world she's like she's literally slipping through the walls of the the great northern hotel like a ghost she knows all the secret passages you know she she has a style that doesn't really match the rest of the people in twin peaks there is a supernatural quality to her presence and I think that in the same way that Cooper kind of commands this this mystic kind of sorcerer's presence, right? Cooper's in touch with something far greater than most people in Twin Peaks can see. And so is Audrey Horn. They're just looking at different aspects of the same kind of like, 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 I don't know, like numinous divine. Yeah, two kinds of two kinds of like presence, right? Cooper yep. is the mystic, the the solid presence around which the world kind of turns. Mm-hmm. Audrey is the ghost. Yep. Who kind of slips between the world. And I think Audrey understands what this show bases a huge amount of its time on, which is uh the the kind of like the the refusal of any distinction between the libidinal and, and uh economic there's one economy right there's one circulation of of desire and capital i mean this is what one eye jacks is basically the very embodiment of but like i'm thinking particularly of the scene where she goes to the, get the job at the department store mm, yep right yeah. so you have this that you have the businessman what's the first thing what's the first thing this guy says mm-hmm. i remember you when you were a little girl yep and it's it's this kind of cr- it's creepy. It's kind of like creepy as hell. Passi- it's this passive aggressive sexualization, mm-hmm. uh, and she gets what she wants. She gets what she wants out of it, and she does it by understanding that intersection that the, there is one economy. There's what the circulation mm-hmm. of ca- of capital that he oversees is intimately bound up within the circulation of desire, and if you can manipulate one, you can manipulate the other. Exactly, exactly. In, in in the same way that Cooper is this 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 kind of mystic figure commanding these these occult forces, right? He's he's the he's very much a uh, Constantine esque figure. Um, so, so is Audrey, but she's commanding these like libidinal energies, it, and it's it's no wonder that the two characters are drawn together. Like they're they're opposite ends of a pole. They're they're two magnets who just naturally seek each other out. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So there's another, there's another, there's another kind of nexus point that we should talk about in the context of that and this episode, which is, um, our poor troubled heartthrob, Bobby, <laughs> Bobby, Bobby Briggs, Bobby Briggs, who, if if so, I suppose if we could phrase it like this, which is like if Audrey is interested in this kind of libidinal aspect to social life. Mm-hmm. Bobby is interested in this kind of like familial structure because what is mm-hmm. like what is it what does he do he's he's inserted himself into the domesticity of uh of uh Shelley and Leo yep and we even have Bobby Briggs going to family therapy Bobby Briggs is all about the the pro the 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 psychological or, 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 or psychoanalytical problems of the family unit Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about Bobby in this episode? I, I I think that Bobby's character nails the bad boy in ways that I think very few texts are capable of because I think that J- James Hurley is not a bad boy. 
James Hurley is Morrissey on a motorcycle. You know, he's yeah, he's he's, troub- he's troubled. He's a, he's he's a good sad boy. He's not he's not a bad yeah. boy. He's a sad boy. Exactly. He's he's a Victorian melancholic in a in a greaser costume. You know, he wants to write some graveyard poetry. And and I think like that is the formula for bad boy in a lot of media, right? Like he's not James Hurley is not dangerous or threatening in the slightest. Bobby is. Bobby Bobby will hurt the people around him. He is he is a very dangerous person to be near. He's involved in like a lot of literally dangerous activity, a lot of violence, a lot of crime, but he himself is also a nexus of that like kind of omnidirectional harm. And and there's something there's something manic about him. He he like Audrey has a lot of agency that he's going to exercise, but unlike Audrey, he he is not in control of it. It's it's just firing off all over the place. And his focus on domesticity is really interesting because we see him like we see the bad boy pitted against a legitimately bad man when when Bobby and Leo kind of enter into conflict with each other. Yeah, there's something kind of there's something kind of like endearing about Bobby where it's sort of like uh, as soon as he realizes it's Leo on the phone, he's like terrified. And a lot of the that scene between Bobby and uh, Shelley, you know, when he's like, oh, I love your cooking. What does it really circulate around? It circulates around the gun. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And and again, you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to read things this way, which is like uh, he's. Like, like he's he's quite quite literally and figuratively cuckolding Leo. Yes, like yep. he's moved into his house, and you have this cozy domesticity, which is underpinned by the kind of phallic violence of the gun as signifier. What mm-hmm. is it that maintains the quote unquote marriage system? It's this, uh, it's this sexualized violence, and it's not a surprise. And like, if you if you understand that context of that scene, it's not a surprise that Shelley shoots him right at the end of this episode. Absolutely, which go Shelley, fucking do it. <laughs> yeah, go off. Yeah, go off, Queen. She did nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in defense of Shelley, like I think that is is absolutely absolutely fascinating too. And to to play Shelley off of these two men, I think is. Another really interesting thing that this episode does, because we we kind of see we, we we see Bobby for like he represents danger and he will hurt people and dis- destroy relationships, but like that that kind of acidic energy that he brings is sometimes for the best. He destroys Shelley and Leo's relationship, but that relationship was going to destroy at some point. Like that was a relation that was a, a thing that needed to die. That thing needed to be destroyed. Those two should not have been together anymore. Leo should have been dealt with. And then along comes along comes Bobby with his kind of like aggressive, assertive, chaotic energy, and he facilitates this. He's 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 the burning of a forest for new growth. You know, there's well, there's something well, isn't, weird about that. Isn't this something that like uh Hank brings up really well in this yes. episode, which is like Oh, you tr- you try not to hurt anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Trying not to hurt anyone. What does that make? What does that generate psychically? It generates misery. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And like for all of the chaos of Bobby Briggs, all of the chaos of of Audrey, what do they do? They 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 are honest and open about what they want and what they desire, and they are they are willing to try and act in the world, 
even even not despite but maybe even because of the knowledge that that might hurt people and like does isn't that kind of a fascinating way of thinking about social dynamics if you try if you try and avoid all possibility of pain what you do is you end up just turning inward you kind of like psychically curdle your own consciousness but it's like is that is that it is that all you is that you know that's the, that's a the really fascinating thing about this show where it goes if that's all you're concerned about what you will do is is that's a recipe for passivity yes mhm and we we see the so we have the love triangle set up between uh Bobby Briggs, Shelley and Leo and we also have the love, love triangle set up between Ed, Nora and Hank and the only difference there is is there's not the kind of chaotic bad boy energy that Bobby brings that is necessary to to break a bond so that people can move on and and Hank or, um not Hank rather but Ed and Nora wind up just totally immiserated over that and it's so interesting to see these two love triangles played off each other yeah absolutely absolutely so should we should we uh round out our discussion with a little psychoanalytic therapy for our wayward Briggs family? Oh yes, let's talk about family therapy. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Jacoby, uh his, his I really recommend Dr. Jacoby's new book, uh Ten Rules for Life. Uh I think it's a <laughs> phenomenal read. You can pick up a copy uh, of it on our Patreon. Ten re- ten rules for uh managing your James Dean wannabe teenager. <laughs> yeah. And there's that amazing oh line. There's that amazing line from Bobby about his father, about yes. Major Briggs. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever killed someone? Only in wartime. And Bobby's mother said that's different. And Bobby quite rightly goes, "How is how how is that yep. different?" Absolutely, absolutely. And and we see because Major Briggs is so clean and respectable as a character. He is, he is quite literally a caricature of, of the most respectable, imaginable American man of a particular era, right? He is, he is a decorated war veteran. He is incredibly well-spoken. He is successful in his field. He, you know, like, he, he acts with nobility. But, like, Bobby just Bobby just, just reads him, just, just cuts straight through all of that pomp and decor, I, my other favorite moment from the uh, session with Dr. Jacoby is when he asks Bobby if he's unhappy. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes, well, that's not for me to say. That's not for me to say. And it's like, uh, isn't it? What, then what are you for, Dr. Right. Jacoby? And, and it becomes very clear what Dr. Jacoby is for when he gets Bobby on his uh, own and his, mm-hmm. his, purpose is a kind of like psychic humiliation ritual right <laughs> yeah and and we see i mean like, like dr jacoby is a great just all-round creep <laughs> just just the worst just the worst possible character foucault could not have written a better character to display what is wrong with with psychology and psychoanalysis and mental health under capitalism like 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 J- Jacoby is here to to he's he's I don't know I, c- I keep coming to to like sword and sorcery analogies but he's like the the evil wizard of the show you using using his petty little magics to manipulate everyone around him to get himself closer to to 
to the, I guess the memory, the ghost of Laura Palmer. Yeah, he's he's this kind of like there's something sort of very. Uh, he's he he's he's interested in exhumation, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's this unable to unable to kind of really let go of the lost object, which is what all the all that Laura was to Doctor Jacoby, obviously. Yeah. Just the 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 lost object of the the melancholic, and it, he he's trying to kind of like literally and sort of he's trying to get inside people's heads to pull out the ghost, the corpse of that which is lost. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, what a what a what a all round creepy dude. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent, just. One one of the one of the show's few like clear bad guys. Where would you like to finish with this episode? So so I I have like a maybe maybe like an open ended question slash statement. This is this I'm doing. I have a question, uh, uh, but it's more of a comment. <laughs> but like so, one of the things the log lady says in this episode. Is that she? She says her husband was a logging man, and oh my god! Let me let me just let me go. I'll go ahead and pull up the quote here. Uh, the the log lady says, "My husband was a logging man. He met the devil. Fire is the devil, hiding like a coward in the smoke." And that line, I think, is so important for our reading of dreaming and desire in this episode of Twin Peaks, but also the show in general and the other medias, like the two movies in the book. But on top of that, I think it situates labor. You know, the, the log lady opens up that line by by focusing first and foremost as her husband as like a blue-collar working man. You know, like a very purposeful detail and how we look at it and understand things. And I think for as mystic as the text of T- Twin Peaks drifts towards... It is always permanently and forever rooted in some very serious material realities. Yes, yes, ab- absolutely. And this is this is the this is the interesting thing about the show, right? Which is like, and something that I think is actually very impressive about it is that it does all of this kind of like deep internal work, this this huge psychoanalytic introspection, but at the same time. It too often I think it's really easy for culture to establish this dichotomy between the material quote unquote real world and the world mm-hmm. of the, the 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 psychedelic world as it were yeah. the the, mm-hmm. the this the dreaming mind and Twin Peaks better than pretty much any other show I think integrates the two to give you actually a holistic impression of not just what's happened. But what does it feel like to live in this kind of condition? I I totally agree with that, and I think one one of the final things we see in this episode is is Leland dancing and having his breakdown. And I think one that's one of the scenes that ties all these points together. It's Leland has recently experienced a trauma to the scale. To a scale that, you know, hopefully most people never get to experience. You know, like he he is he has now survived something truly catastrophic. And as we will go on to learn, he did more than just survive it. Um, he participated. And 
the the racked place his psyche is in is is barely navigable and what i think is interesting about his breakdown is that how everyone responds to it as an embarrassment like leland leland is the gothic heroine of this episode yes yes absolutely and it's it's it shows the ways in which what they what they would call you know sensibility uh, uh, Mm -hmm. is such a heavily gendered terminology like he's he's a he's 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 a hysteric right yeah he's Mm -hmm. he's treated he's treated like a hysteric um like he's oh you should go away you should you should lie on your fainting couch yes yes they're always telling him to go convalesce is 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 undergirded by the by the demand you should not embarrass us publicly which is Mm -hmm. what that kind of emotion is is seen as the sign of it's seen as like a social problem. It isn't. It yes. isn't. And in and in a way, it is because that kind of loss is is irreducibly a social problem, right? That kind of grief, that that mm-hmm. is a social problem, and it should be acknowledged. It should be dealt yep. with. It should be integrated into social life. But uh, we live in such uh, restrictive systems that it can't be, or it, or it, or it, that 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 opportunity of integrating it into social life is refused. And the kind of heartbreaking thing is like the moment when it could happen, right? The public dance, it's played off as a joke. Mm-hmm. It's played off as a joke. He like Leland becomes pathetic. Yeah, you know, huge amounts of pathos uh, in in this episode, I think, because uh, because social decorum has to be preserved, even though Leland knows and we know that that social decorum is just a veneer for the kind of like. This sort of weird psychedelic vortex of of violence and sexual desire. Absolutely, and and Leland is also his his modalities that he chooses to express his grief are very social, very emotional, and very interpersonal. Right, he is he is always just just dripping with pathos everywhere he goes, and it's splashing onto everyone. And especially if so, if he would have, if his if his mode of grieving would have been to ask the Horn brothers to go party at One Eyed Jack's for a weekend, they they would have been like, "Hell yeah, brother, let's go!" You know, like you are now exhibiting the appropriate grieving patterns for a male of your age and economic status. Please continue. You know, like if he would have bought a car or like like gone gone on a, a, a beach vacation or something. But instead, he's he's trying to return to a community, but it's a community that he, as he's discovering, does not actually exist for him. These or are just economic that relationships. Doesn't want him. There's a, it's yes. a community that doesn't want him. It wants its. It wants his capital. Yep. Mm-hmm. He was he was only ever there as a functionary of the Great Northern's economic success. He was never really there as a person. All right, what, a little bit of a longer stop. Longer yeah. mini episode today. Well, this was oh episode God. five. <laughs> we went uh, a little, a little over the mini episode length, but hey, that's uh, it's, that's kind of what we're known for at this point. Uh, thank you, everyone, and in uh, two weeks, we'll uh, you'll be hearing episode six of our Twin Peaks retrospective, season one of our Twin Peaks retrospective, I should say. Uh, so enjoy your coffee, enjoy your pie, and look out for those doppelgangers out there. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.